Uh, the title of this morning's sermon is Are You Burdened by Sin? And we're going to be, we're working our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel, but I want to read some verses in Psalm 32 if you want to stand with me for that. Psalm 32, we'll be there for a few verses before we dig into Luke. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. You may be seated. <clears throat> Father, it's so wonderful to worship you through singing as I, as I sit there and just listen to these voices be raised. And, and the word that comes to mind for me is heavenly. It just seems heavenly to be worshiping you uh, in your house like this. And maybe this is uh, one of the times we are as closest to, to heaven as we are on, on this side of it as we worship you with other believers corporately like this. And I pray that worship continues now, Lord, as we study your word. We don't want to think in our minds that worship is singing and not and not preaching. And so use me, Lord, so that you could be worshiped during this time. Help me to rightly divide your word, bless the, the hours I've spent studying, deliver the message that you have for your people, uh, that you want to say to them. I'm thankful that you knew who would be here and that you have something uh, special for each person, Lord, and give us that anticipation to hear from you. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't leave here um, the same as we came, that we'd be changed. And we think especially about any unbelievers who, who might have joined us this morning. We hope that uh, you did bring in some, and we pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. And for the saints who are here, Lord, that you would continue the sanctifying work that only your uh, Holy Spirit can accomplish as the word washes over each of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. So for Christmas, we got our children, or one of our children, a version of Pilgrim's Progress for kids and we started reading it together as a family, again, because we didn't finish it the last time we started reading through it. And, I'm, and so I don't even know if we'll finish it this time, because we're not as faithful in reading uh, books outside the Bible as I, we probably should be. But we're reading this, and we started having a very good discussion as a family about the burden. If you're familiar with the book, it's an allegory, which is to say that all of the individuals in the book are represented by their names. And so the pilgrim is named Christian, and he, his journey represents the Christian's journey. And he carries something on his back. And what does he carry on his back? He carries this burden, and that burden, uh, along the lines of it being an allegory, represents what? His sin. It is this burden, this sin that he has on his back that is really the, the motivation for him to begin this journey and it prompts him to seek salvation. It's not until he reaches what's known as the place of deliverance, which would be the cross, that he gets rid of this burden. And this brings us to lesson one. Sin is a heavy burden to bear. Sin is a heavy burden to bear. Listen to the lyrics of this well-known hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. And why would we want to sing about Christ bearing our, our sin besides just the fact that we don't want to be punished for those sins? Because it is a real burden to carry sin with us. It is really uh, a heavy burden to have unconfessed or unrepentant sin in our lives. And then it says, are we weak and heavy laden? And this is how a burden makes us feel. Why would that, those words follow? except that the, the individual who wrote this hymn recognized that carrying sin or that burden causes us to feel weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, some more language of a very heavy burden. Probably the best description of someone carrying the burden of sin in all of Scripture is found here in Psalm 32. And so I want to begin with this before we look at Luke 15, because I want you to see what it was like for David as he describes this heavy sin burden that he is carrying. Look with me at verse 1. David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, 
whose sin is covered. This is his way of describing the blessing of someone being unburdened of sin. So blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven is really blessed is the person who is unburdened from sin, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We're going to tie together the last two sermons into this sermon. There will be different times that I reference the last two sermons in this sermon, and this is the first instance. Do you remember we discussed double imputation? Double imputation is what takes place at the moment of conversion, where our sins are imputed to Christ's account, and then what's accounted or what's imputed to our account? His righteousness. He receives our sin, this incredibly unfair but beautiful transaction. He receives our sin. We receive his righteousness. And I mention that because this is pregnant with imputation. In fact, when Paul wants to explain imputation in Romans chapter 4, he quotes David here in Psalm 32. And in particular, notice where it says, the Lord counts no iniquity. That's synonymous with the Lord does not impute any iniquity to our account. Now, it's somewhat veiled or shadowy here, but the reason that sin would not be imputed or iniquity would not be imputed or counted to our account is that it's going to be imputed to Christ. The verse says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And this is a great reason to be blessed or to feel blessed when you consider that God is not going to impute your sin to your account. But here's what's interesting. David talks about why he's blessed in the following verses, and it has to do with how he felt physically after he had been unburdened from sin. So right here at the beginning when he talks about the blessing for the person whose sin is not imputed to them, you tend to expect him to go on to discuss something spiritual. But what he actually does is he goes on to discuss something physical how he felt when he was burdened by sin. If you look at the first word of verse 3, at least in the ESV, it's the word for, which means because. And so David says that he's blessed in verses 1 and 2 for or because of the reason that he's about to give, which is he didn't have to keep feeling the way that he felt when he was burdened by sin or when that burden had been lifted. Look at verse 3. He says, for when I kept silent, and what does that mean, when I kept silent? What does he mean when I, when he says, when I kept silent, what does he mean? Yeah, when I hadn't confessed, when I had not confessed. And so what's the context? Most of us probably know it. David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, tries to hide his sin by having her husband Uriah murdered. He does not confess his sin. He covers it. I, I was told for at least one time, I don't know if we know exactly how long, but up to 18 months until the prophet Nathan came and confronted him. And during that season of unrepentance or absence of confession, he's describing how he felt. One of the marks of uh, Scripture's integrity is that it records very honestly the lowest points of its heroes. E even those individuals that we would hold in the highest regard, their sins and failures are still discussed very transparently for us. And this is one of those moments where David is the one who does the, does the sharing, or he's the one who's transparent about how he felt during this season of uh, lack of confession or unrepentance. And look what he says as verse 3 goes on. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now, this just is not what I would expect David to say. After talking about being blessed because his sin is not imputed to him, I would anticipate him sharing something spiritually. This verse is entirely physical. David is going to talk about the spiritual in a moment, but at first he deals with the physical and how bad it was, all the consequences physically speaking from his unconfessed sin or from that burden that's crushing him. And whenever you 
well, I don't know if it's whenever, maybe there are some pictures that don't look this way, but when you see pictures of the Christian from Pilgrim's Progress, how does he typically look as he's making his journey? You know, he's hunched over, he's being crushed beneath this burden. That is what David is describing here. He says, my body is wasting away. He feels it down to his bones. Sometimes we talk about feeling something down to our bones, right? Like if we're particularly cold. Well, he's saying that the physical grief associated with his unconfessed sin was causing his body to waste away. They don't know the age that Abraham died. If you don't, not a big deal. I don't think this is a typical. <laughs> Any guesses? Well, that, very good, 175, Don. Isaac, his son, 180. Jacob, 147. Moses, 120. Joshua, 110. And we know how old David was when he died? 70. Not particularly old for the Old Testament. Not even particularly old today when the, I think the average age for men is 75 and for women is 80. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, David was old and advanced in years, and he wasn't really that old, at least not in Old Testament uh, times. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. It is quite the contrast when you leave 2 Samuel and then you see 1 Kings begin with this description of one of the most vibrant, uh, strongest, vigorous men in all of Scripture, who now sounds very what? Sick weak, old, decrepit, his body is failing him, his health has deteriorated dramatically at, at a fairly young age regarding, old test, uh, regarding the Old Testament, uh, and especially a young age for a man as physically gifted and as strong as David was. And what happened? Do you remember a battle he lost? Do you remember a time he was fighting and he was defeated? Why does he look like this? This is the toll that sin had taken on him. He had been aged prematurely by this burden crushing him. He could feel it in his bones. We think of sin affecting us spiritually, and it definitely does, but there is also a physical effect from it. There's a quality of life that is afforded us when we submit to God. Uh, there's a reason that the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. There's consequences to sinfulness. There's, there's as, as much as there's typically blessing, peace, joy associated with an obedient, submitted life, and I, I don't mean that that means God makes us healthy uh, um, necessarily or, or wealthy. That would be prosperity preaching. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that there's a peace and joy that comes with or accompanies uh, an obedient life, whereas a rebellious life is going to be characterized typically by a certain wear and tear, a suffering and a grief. It is part of the burden of sin. Look at verse 4. David says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now when he says my strength, and I believe some other translations say my vitality or even my life was drying up. So David is in essence saying here, that he could feel himself slowly what? Dying. He is describing slowly dying because of the crushing weight of sin. More than likely, David seemed to hope that this conviction and guilt was going to go away, but it didn't. He said that it was heavy on him when? What does it say? It's not a trick question. What does it say? It was heavy on him when? Day and night, all the time, nonstop, he can't eat. He can't sleep. Nighttime is not more comforting for him than daytime. If you've ever struggled with any sort of insomnia or inability to sleep, you know how difficult it can be. The more David covered his sin, the more he suffered, the worse his life became. He's paying this excruciating price for this burden that he continues to carry. Look one chapter to the left to Psalm 31. Psalm 31, verse 10. For my life is spent with sorrow. There's no joy. My years with sighing. He's filled with grief. My strength fails. And then you could wonder, well, why so sad? Why so much grief? Why 
so much joylessness. And then we're told, because of my iniquity, my strength is failing, or my vitality or my life is wasting away. So again, a description of slowly dying, my bones waste away. Again, physical suffering. Turn to the right to Psalm 38. Psalm 38, verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. If you pause right there, you say, okay, well, this individual is suffering because of God's hand being heavy against him. But then the verse goes on. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. So again, we've got the soundness of his flesh, the, the health of his bones, showing that he's talking about physical suffering, and he says it's because of his sin. These are very vivid descriptions of the physical toll that sin takes on us. John Don said, sin is a serpent, and whoever covers it only keeps it warm so that it may sting even more fiercely and disperse the venom more effectively. So in other words, carrying around sin or the burden of sin only makes the suffering worse for us. When we're burdened by sin, what are some of the things we wonder mentally that affect us physically? Because of the anxiety that's caused, we wonder, how much longer can I keep living like this? We run into people and we wonder what they think or we wonder what they know. Do the people around me know what I've done? We wonder what we want to pray or we want to read the word. We wonder what God thinks. What is God thinking? What is he going to do to me? We wonder, are we going to be found out? When is my husband or my wife going to find out? When are my children going to find out? When are my parents going to find out? When are my coworkers going to find out? Are my friends or my neighbors? When we're carrying around this secret or unconfessed sin, when is my church going to find out? And these sorts of questions weigh on people mentally, emotionally, but plays out on us physically. And I don't mean that they just weigh on us spiritually, but we feel it in our flesh. We feel it in our body. Turn back to Psalm 32. Now we'll see that maybe the worst thing for David was he knew where this affliction was coming from. Psalm 32, verse 4. Who does David attribute his affliction to, his physical suffering? Who does he see uh, causing it? Verse 4, your hand was heavy upon me. You don't have to turn back there, but Psalm 38, verse 2, your arrows pierce me deeply and your hand presses me down. Psalm 38, 3, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger. So David knew it wasn't just his conscience beating him up. and our consciences can beat us up. He knew that it wasn't just the guilt and the shame that was affecting him. He knew that it was God himself. So God chastened him for almost maybe a year and a half, made him miserable while he refused to. And finally, and David's still of his own volition. I mean, you could say of his own volition after he was confronted, but he had to be confronted by the prophet Nathan coming to him. Spurgeon said, and then you say, well, why did Nathan go to David? Because God sent him. Because as Charles Spurgeon said, God does not permit his children to sin successfully. In Hebrews 12, who are the only individuals who are able to sin and be unchastened? Or let me just make it real simple. According to Hebrews 12, who are the only individuals who are able to get away with sin? People that are not God's children or unbelievers. It says if you are without discipline, then you are what? You're not one of God's children. God disciplines his children. He disciplines the ones he loves. When we look at people and we think that they're getting away with it, it could be strong evidence that they simply are not Christians or they're simply not individuals that God is dealing with. It is a grace that God deals with us. It is a grace that his hand is, is heavy on us. It's a grace because he loves us that he does not allow us to get away with sin. David is one of the premier examples in Scripture this weight of conviction and shame. It's this horrible feeling. The struggle gets worse each day. 
And so sometimes it's a relief to be found out. So you don't have to hide anymore. You, you're then, you, there's help you want, you know you need, because you're not developing the victory on your own, but you're afraid to go to, the, to go to get the help that you need. And so you have this bizarre desire that you would get caught. You hope for that because then you'll be forced to get the, hope, the help that you know is really the only remedy for this struggle or this addiction or obsession that you can't overcome on your own. How many of us have heard of stories of criminals who leave what behind? Clues. And why do they do that? They want, they want to in this way that doesn't make, seem to make much sense to us until we consider that they're burdened or being crushed by some sin or some conviction or shame, they leave clues to be found out because they want this to come to an end. They don't seem to be able to end it themselves, and so they leave clues hoping that they can be caught, and then this nightmare that they're living can, can finally cease. So God presses on David so hard that finally and very wonderfully he breaks. Look at verse 5. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Three different ways David describes beautifully being unburdened from sin. He says he acknowledged his sin, which is to say un- he's unburdened by it, unburdened from it. He, did, he no longer covered it, his iniquity, and then he says he confesses it. So repeatedly, in one verse, three different ways, David talks about being unburdened from his sin. So his misery was this wonderful gift from God to bring him to this place. And so what I want you to see is it's the confession of verse 5 that delivers David or us from the agony and misery of verses 3 and 4, right? And so there's a very incredible pause or space that exists between verse 4 and verse 5. And it's really a question of how long we will live in that space between verse 4 and verse 5, isn't it? How long, and, and sometimes miserably or agonizingly, we will exist between verse 4 before we move into verse 3 and can finally experience the freedom from being unburdened by sin. Until we're in verse 5, or as long as we're in verses 3 and 4, there's this heaviness, there's guilt, there's shame, there's the toll being taken on us mentally, emotionally, if you're like me and you have sinned and you have not repented uh, as quickly as you should or you had hidden your sin for some time, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you could be sitting here today and feel like this sermon is describing your situation. There, I can look at seasons of my life when I did not, I did not confess like I should. And I remember the, this weight, the toll, the feeling of separation from God, the conviction feeling like God is just pressing down on me, trying to, to break me and bring me to that, to that beautiful point of, of being unburdened. Now keep all this in mind and turn to Luke 14, and we'll connect the dots in a moment. We have baptisms coming up next Sunday. That would be a wonderful, this would be a wonderful week if any of you are feeling heavy or burdened uh, from sin, to then confess or be unburdened and then to be baptized before your church family. So I want to remind you of the context for Luke 14. <clears throat> verse 25, it says, Great crowds are accom- I'll go through this quickly because we preached on these verses, or I did for a few weeks. Great crowds accompany Jesus. He turns and says to them, so thousands follow Jesus. The crowds are inflated. He, he knows they're bloated and filled with these people that are not true disciples. And so he's going to thin out the crowds, and in verse, he tells them these incredibly challenging statements. Verse 26, he says, you need to hate your father, mother, wife, brothers, children, sisters, even your own life, or you can't be his disciple. Verse 27, he says, you have to carry your cross, or you can't be his disciple. Verses 38 to 30, 28 to 32, he talks about counting the cost before deciding to follow him. And then verse 33, he says, if people aren't willing to give up their possessions, they can't be his disciple. And then in verse 34 and 35, he talks about salt that loses its saltiness, is worth nothing, and the implication is disciples who lose their saltiness or are worthless are also good for nothing and will be thrown out like salt that's lost its saltiness. And then at the end of verse 35, he says, 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay. Who had ears to hear? Who had ears to hear? Look at Luke 15, verse 1. The tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They were the ones who had ears to hear. They not only heard what he said, but they continued following him and even drew nearer or pressed in closer to him. It is just not what you'd expect. You'd expect that the people who had ears to hear were the religious people or the religious leaders. I mean, if anyone's going to hear the teaching of the Son of God himself, if anyone has ears to listen, wouldn't it be the most religious people who have been praying the most to God or the most in tune with his will and, and have been following him supposedly with their lives? Instead, it's the exact opposite of that. There's no mention of them. They're the ones most opposed to Jesus, and it's the sinners and the tax collectors who are pressing into him. And here's the question, why? Why is that? Why does this read the way that it does? Why do we read that they're the ones pressing in? Good, well, I'm glad you asked that, I'll tell you. Because of what we read in Psalm 32. These are the people who are being crushed by their sin burden. These are the ones who want to be unburdened. These are the ones who look like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. These tax collectors and sinners, it's not every tax, there were plenty of tax collectors who didn't press into Christ. There were plenty of sinners who were not drawing nearer to him. But these were the ones who looked like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress and wanted that burden to be lifted. And this brings us to lesson two. Sinners draw near to Jesus to have their sin burden lifted. Sinners draw near to Jesus to have their sin burden lifted. The verse says, sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the way this is worded, it could almost imply or make you think that there's like these two categories of people. One category of people are the sinners, and then what's the other category of people? The not sinners, right? I mean, that's the way it sounds like. The sinners are the ones pressing in, but the non-sinners are not pressing in. That's definitely not what's happening here. To be clear with you, when it says tax collectors and sinners, it's referring to notorious sinners. It's referring to the sinners that people would be aware of. You could think of criminals or others who were known to have been in trouble with the law. Probably the people who'd been arrested or probably who had been able to, to find work uh, because nobody would trust them. These would be sexually immoral people. These would be harlots. These would be people of very uh, uh, poor reputations that you w- wouldn't want to associate with because you've heard about the different um, partners or ways that they've lived. Uh, these would be drunkards, people who'd embarrass themselves probably embarrassed their family members, maybe had families that would no longer have anything uh, to do with them because of the ways that they had behaved. These are the sinners who are pressing into Jesus, these notorious ones, because they wanted their burdens lifted. They're tired of this guilt. They're tired of this shame that they're experiencing. They're tired of feeling God's hand pressing down on him. It is exhausting for them and miserable. And so as soon as they see a way to be unburdened of their sin, they, which they see in Christ, they pursue him. And we don't know this. I mean, I don't even know exactly how long it was for David, but there is a part of me that kind of wonders, how long were these people miserable? How long did they feel like Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, before Christ came on the scene and offered a way for them to have their sin burden lifted? Now, there's kind of this lingering idea and I, I really want to dispel this. I think it's an dangerous. I think it's completely false that we can say Jesus is a friend of sinners, but he was a friend of sinners because he loved them and helped deliver them of, it, of their sin. He preached repentance to them. But sometimes there's kind of this very twisted view of Jesus's relationship with sinners that 
he was a friend and that he just sort of hung out with them and was very close. And this, and this idea sort of lingers in the church and always, you know, comes up every once in a while. And every time I hear it, I just despise it. This idea that Jesus is just hanging out with sinners regularly and he's, and he's and unbelievably kind to them. And he wants nothing more than to be as friendly as possible to them without dealing with their sin. Like he never preaches repentance. He just takes them just the way that they are and he has no care whatsoever if they continue engaging in all of the sinful behavior that they've been engaging in prior to their relationship with him. And that is absolutely untrue. And I'll give you, in fact, I'll go so far as to tell you that the individuals who were pressing into Jesus knew that to press in and be a disciple of his meant repenting. They knew that came with the territory, that to be with Jesus meant repenting of their sin. And I'll give you two reasons I think this. John the Baptist is Jesus' forerunner. And how did John's ministry, so in other words, this is the individual preparing people for Jesus. This is the man who's going to get hearts ready for when Christ comes. And when John the Baptist comes on the scene, what is the premier word he says? <laughs> repent. Listen to how Jesus's ministry begins. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, which means from the time that Jesus's ministry began, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And do you know what Jesus, what he preached? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus, John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus by preaching repentance. And when Jesus comes and begins his ministry, he is preaching repentance. And so the tax collectors and sinners in Luke 15, 1, who are pressing into Jesus, know that following him means repenting. Or in other words, they know that to follow Jesus means doing what David described in Psalm 32, verse 5, acknowledging their sin, not covering their iniquity, confessing their transgressions. But here's one of the incredibly sad aspects of this account. Not everyone's happy about this, right? Look at verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, and they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So let's talk about this. Why was it so upsetting about Jesus eating with these people? Kenneth Bailey wrote, in the East, even today, as in the past, a nobleman may feed any number of lesser needy persons as a sign of his generosity but he does not eat with them. In the ancient world, although I suppose it could possibly be the case for some of us today, but in the ancient world, eating a meal with somebody communicated something completely different than it typically does for us. It communicated acceptance of that person's actions and that person's lifestyle. And the religious leaders' words reveal this. Look at their words. They didn't just say that Jesus ate with them. They also said that by eating with them, Jesus was also doing what? Receiving them. He approved of them, is what they're accusing him of. And eating with people, it was an act of becoming one. And the idea was kind of this. You're being fed by the same food. You're consuming the same food. And so because of that, you are also one with this person. So typically people sit around this table. Uh, we don't eat like this. All of us, you know, drawing from the same loaf of bread. We have different hy hygienic standards. I mean, if you want to attend the potluck today and put the food in the middle of the table and you all, you all kind of pull from it at the same time, you're, you're welcome to do that. But obviously we don't, we don't really eat. We even, even when you go through the potluck line, you know, we have tongs and things so that everyone's not grabbing the food at the same time. So we don't really think of when we read that in a meal together, we kind of project our meals. But it was, a, it was an intimate scenario where everyone is touching, their hands touch, and they're touching the same bread and the same soup. So they're sitting around, generally circularly, a table. There's a loaf of bread, typically a loaf of bread that is passed around, where people rip off a piece of the bread and then hand it to the next person. So if you're the last one to get the bread, like, you know, 10 other people have already touched it. And we have familiarity with this from the Last Supper, because this is how Jesus passed the bread around and then makes this announcement that this bread represents his body. Well, at the Last Supper, when Jesus broke the bread with the disciples, he wasn't doing something that he hadn't already done with them countless times before. 
It's just that this was the time when he made the association between his body and the bread. And then they'd have this bread and they might tip, and they would typically dip it into a bowl of soup. But there would be one bowl that everyone's dipping their bread into at the same time, not people having multiple bowls of soup. And so as they ate the same bread, the same soup, they're being nourished by the same food, the idea is there is a oneness or there is this unity that we are, we are similar or we are identifying with these people. And so the last thing that the religious leaders would do with, was eat with sinners because it communicated that they're becoming one with them and they thought that this made them unclean. So here's the question. How do we explain Jesus being so close to the unclean? Because we talked about this in a recent sermon to tie another sermon together with this one. Let me just ask you this. We should have relationships with unbelievers or even the worst people we can imagine. But is there a danger associated with being too close to them? Or yes, much, very much so. The Bible warns us about bad company. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, there's bad company corrupts good morals. There's Proverbs about becoming too close with foolish or sinful people and some of their sin or anger or foolishness rubbing off on us. It's presented as almost being contagious. So how do we explain Jesus being so close but not becoming unclean himself? And I want to show you by having you turn a few chapters to the left to Luke 5. Luke 5. If there's one condition or disease in all of Scripture most closely associated with uncleanness, what is it? Yeah, leprosy. Leprosy is so closely associated with uncleanness that when lepers drew close, they didn't even yell leper, leper, leper. They yelled what? Unclean, unclean, unclean. Look at verse 12. While Jesus is in one of the cities, there came a man, notice this, this is a very advanced stage of leprosy. He is, the Bible tells us he is, I mean, Luke, a physician, tells us this man is full of leprosy. We're beyond a few spots, not to be too graphic, we're talking, probably having to keep much of his body bandaged up because parts of it falling off. He sees Jesus, he falls on his face, and he begs him, and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What do you never do with lepers? I mean, you try to stay away from them, but if you did get near one, what do you make sure you never do? Never touch them. Look at verse 13. Jesus stretches out his hand, and he didn't have to do it this way. Do you remember when the Roman centurion came to Jesus and Jesus applauded the Roman centurion's face? Faith. What did the Roman, what did the Roman centurion say to Jesus when Jesus started heading to the Roman centurion's to the house of the man that the Roman centurion wanted to see healed. What did the Roman centurion say? You just say the word and he'll be healed. You don't even have to embarrass yourself or, or introduce yourself to amount of criticism or slander. By coming under my roof, you say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus applauds this, this man's faith. So the point is, he didn't have to touch this leper like he did here. But he did to make a point. Now pause for a second and I really need you to um, pay attention while we cover this. Introducing something else. See, the, the problem is, you know, I put these sermons together, and I begin, and I think I'll cover this in one sermon, and then it's like four sermons of material, right? Well, the problem with that is then you're trying to connect parts from multiple sermons that you've used in previous sermons to build up to the current sermon. So when we, we looked at some verses in Haggai that had to do with transmission, you don't have to turn back there, but do you remember what can be transmitted and what, what can't be transmitted? Can holiness be transmitted? No, holiness can't. Holy people can't touch unholy people and make them holy. But what can be transmitted? Unholiness, right? Haggai 2.11, thus says the Lord of hosts. And listen to this. Ask the priests about the law. So these are questions about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or any kind of food, does the food become holy? And the priest said no. So according to the law, if something clean touches something unclean, whatever is unclean or unholy does not become holy. And whatever is holy then becomes unholy. There's never been an intersection of holiness and unholiness or cleanness and uncleanness except perhaps when Jesus interacted with unclean spirits or demons. 
like when he came in contact with this leper. You have the epitome of holiness or cleanness in Christ and the epitome of uncleanness in this leper. And when Jesus reached out and touched him, the opposite took place. The opposite of what the law described took place at that moment. And it is a beautiful picture of the double imputation that we have discussed before because what should have happened when Jesus touched the leper? Should the leper have become clean? Should Jesus have become unclean? Instead, Jesus touches the leper and he makes the leper clean without becoming unclean himself. And why is that? Because the questions that Haggai asked the priests were about the law and what the law can and can't do. But who or what is greater than the law? Christ. So what the law can't do, Christ can do. And we know that. The law can't save. The law can't sanctify. It just condemns. Has anyone ever been saved by the law? No, absolutely not. It leaves you feeling like Paul describes at the end of Romans 7, just wretched, frustrated with yourself because of your inability to keep it. And that's why you need Christ. And that's why Christ can do what the law can't do and why Christ can reach out and touch incredible uncleanness or incredible holiness and instead of becoming unholy or unclean himself, introduce holiness, introduce cleanness. I mean, and that's why when the leper said, will you make me clean? What did Jesus say? He said, I will be clean and introduce cleanness into this man's life. And that's the double imputation. Because leprosy is the most dramatic picture or type of sin in Scripture, when Jesus cleansed this man, do you see the double imputation that took place? Jesus reaches into this man's life and takes away his leprosy like he reaches into your life and takes away your sin. And he said, this man, be clean, filling this man with cleanness like he reaches into your life and fills you with his righteousness. And I'm telling you this because it is the only way to correctly understand not just Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, but Jesus' relationship with sinful people ever, at any time. This is why he can be so close to the unclean tax collectors or the unclean sinners without becoming unclean himself. Just as Jesus touches the leper without becoming a leper, instead taking the leprosy away. He has close relationships with sinners without becoming a sinner himself, instead taking away their sin. Now look at Luke 15, 2, one more time. Luke 15, 2. The Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And I want to ask you to think about something. There's really only one way that the religious leaders could make this statement. There's only one way the religious leaders could say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And it's if the religious leaders didn't think that they were what? Sinners. And this brings us to lesson three. The self-righteous never have their sin burden lifted. The self-righteous never have their sin burden lifted. This would have been um, part four of last week's sermon. This was another thing I couldn't get in last week's sermon. But if you remember last week's sermon, we talked about the dangers of self-righteousness. I think that was the title of the sermon. We had three lessons about the danger of self-righteousness. I don't expect you to remember them. I don't even remember a lot of what I preached the week before, but... One of the dangers of self-righteousness, it causes us to think we're spiritually healthy when we're spiritually sick. It prevents us from wanting Jesus's righteousness because we're already convinced that we're righteous, and it's shooting at the wrong target. Do you remember that with Matthew Emmons, the sharpshooter, shooting at the wrong target? Trying to be righteous by works instead of by faith is shooting at the wrong target. Well, one of the other dangers of self-righteousness is it causes us to look down on others. It causes us to see sin in other people that we don't see in ourselves. The only way the religious leaders could look down on the people Jesus was eating with and call them sinners 
was if they didn't think they were sinners, was they thought they were better than them. They thought there was this large chasm that existed between them, the religious leaders, and the sinners that they're looking down on. And I want to conclude by showing you some verses on Isaiah 65. If you'll turn there, we won't turn back to Luke. Turn to Isaiah 65. The first prophet after, after Psalms and Proverbs, so a little past the middle of your Bibles. Isaiah 65, we'll start at verse 2. Isaiah 65, verse 2. God is speaking and he says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. Now, when God says, I'm spreading out my hands all day, every day to these people, how does he look? He looks very kind. He looks very compassionate. He looks very concerned, but these people will not respond because they're what? says in the verse. They're rebellious. Now, the word who is repeated six times in these verses to describe their rebellion. So God says this in verse 3. He says, they are a people who provoke me to my face continually. When God says they provoke him to his face continually, he's talking about the very heavy, high-handed, or openly defiant way in which they sin without any shame and with no concern about whether God observes what they're doing. And then verse 3 goes on, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. So they provoke God with their idolatry. And then in verse 4, it says, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. That sounds probably unfamiliar to us, but it's referring to divination. They're consulting the dead. They spend time in graveyards or, or secret places where they can speak to people who have died. This is what divination is. It's, uh, it's wicked. It's an abomination in the Old Testament. It's punishable by death. It's what actually the sin when Saul should have been preparing his men to battle when he went to consult with Samuel the prophet. Wouldn't listen to Samuel when he's alive, wants to talk to Samuel when he's dead. And so this is talking about the people divining here. Verse 4 goes on, they eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, and so they have no concern for God's law and what he has forbidden. Now up to this point, the people look very bad. This is a list of their rebellious ways. We look at their sins and what they're engaging in, and we can understand why God would judge them so strongly. But I'll share something interesting with you. My children have started—this isn't the part that's necessarily interesting. I'll share what's interesting in just a moment. But to build up to it, my kids have been participating in speech and debate. And so if they deliver speeches, one of the kinds of speeches that they can deliver is persuasive. And I was a business major in college, don't remember a lot of what I studied, but I had to take some speech classes. And I remember when they were talking about persuading people or delivering a persuasive speech, where do you always put your strongest argument? At the end. You always put your strongest argument at the end. You don't want people to hear your strongest argument at the beginning and then be kind of disappointed as your speech goes on, right? So you're always kind of building up to this final point that you're going to deliver. And that's what God does here. Look at verse 5 as he persuades us about the people's sinfulness to see his last convincing argument. He says, They are people who say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. And these are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Now, is that the religious leaders in Luke 15 or what? Could, could there be a better description? of the, and In fact, if you write in your Bible, you can even circle the words here, keep to yourself and don't come near me, for I am too holy for you, and draw a little line and write Luke 15 too. It's just interesting to me. It jumped out at me that God is condemning these people for their rebelliousness, and like the last straw or the, the worst thing he's going to say about them is their what? Their pride. Their arrogance. 
There are these people that sit back looking down on others and saying, oh, you stay away from me. I am too holy for you. You are too sinful for me. And God says it's a stench. It just reeks. It's like smoke that's coming up and irritating me constantly. God just despises this kind of attitude. He condemns this heart that looks down on others. And these kinds of people, I mean, one of the real problems associated with having that kind of attitude, it's not just that it upsets God, although that's bad enough. The other problem is that people without heart never have their sin burden lifted. Jesus doesn't take away their sins because they don't think they have any sins to be taken away. So instead, we want to be like the leper that we read about. Luke 5, 12, when the leper saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him. And he said, Lord, if you can make me clean. And that's really the attitude that we should cry out to the Lord with. Now, maybe you've had sin in your life, sin that started out as a few spots. I mean, that's the interesting thing with leprosy and why it's such a fitting picture of sin was it would spread very slowly. It's not noticeable at first. You can hide it from other people. But soon it starts spreading and it's becoming noticeable to the people around you. And so come to Jesus like the leper did. Have him cleanse you too. Because the leper said, if you are willing, Lord, you can make me clean. And what did Jesus respond? I am willing. The exact same response Jesus has for people today who come to him to be cleansed of their spiritual leprosy. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. And, and it's interesting that it says this, doesn't it? It could stop here. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, period. There's no period there. It goes on. For him to do what? To cleanse us. And why that language? Isn't that, just a, isn't that beautiful language? Isn't it just refreshing? Don't you just love to think about being cleansed of that sin? And it makes another parallel with leprosy, which was cleansed from people. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our spiritual leprosy, from all unrighteousness. If you have any questions about anything I taught this morning or I could pray for you in any way, I'd consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you. Father, we thank you so much for the cleansing work that your son does when we go to him. Let us not be like the religious leaders we read about in uh, Luke 15 who would look down on others and, and as a result keep themselves far from Christ. Let, let us be like those in Luke 5, that leper who drew near to Jesus, fell on his face, and cried out to him to be cleansed. And it's not to say that just because we're, we're Christians that we no longer have struggles. And so, Lord, I pray that um, for all of us who are Christians, when we sense any, any spiritual leprosy or sin in our lives, that we, would, that we would confess it, that we would cry out to be delivered from it. We recognize as long as we're on this side of heaven, we will always have to uh, wrestle against sin. Uh, we will be cloaked in the flesh. And so help us when we start to see spiritual leprosy in our lives, Lord, that we would reach out to you to have those spots removed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.